uh, I was thinking this week, which is on, I think it is, uh, I was thinking this week and remembering about a place that I used to love to go uh, during my college years. It's a place called Lake Red Rock. It's a beautiful lake made by damming uh, the Des Moines River in central Iowa. Oh, there we are. Feel the power. So, uh, y'all y'all heard the first part anyway, though, right? You're good, okay. But anyway, uh, I probably spent hundreds of hours there during my college years. I used to love to go there, walk along the shoreline just to sort of decompress sometimes uh, during particularly stressful seasons. I'd go out there with friends. They had uh, some areas that were like cliffs, and so we would have fires out there at night and sit and kind of just watch the stars and talk with friends and hang out together. Um, it was maybe a few miles from where our college was, and so sometimes we'd walk all the way out there, uh, enjoy the beach. Uh, I went cliff jumping there for my first time and cliff diving, and so <laughs> it was super fun, again, with friends and, and kind of hang out. They had, a, obviously, there's the dam, and they had walkways that went all the way around it, and so I just, I loved being there. Uh, I'm kind of a nature guy, and so love being out there and just enjoying it and that kind of stuff, um, but then after my junior year in college, uh, I've shared before that I took some time off. I actually went to Russia, lived in St. Petersburg for uh, not quite a year and a half. And, uh, and when I came back to finish up my senior year, Lake Red Rock had completely and utterly changed. It was total, so, so much different that it was hardly recognizable to me. There had been a horrible flood in the year uh, when I was away. And it had completely changed the flow of the river. The shoreline was drastically different. There were islands that existed and inlets uh, that didn't exist before that were now a part of, of the river and of the lake. Huge amounts of the shoreline had been washed away uh, with the currents that were at, at, during the flood were flowing, they said, at 103,000 cubic feet per second, enough to fill about six 75-foot-long swimming pools every second. I mean, it was it, what was once a tranquil and peaceful sort of river had turned into sort of a raging rapids that was just washing and carving away, chiseling out the rock, carving away different shorelines. The water table was different. The, the river was different. The lake was different. Even the area around the dam was hardly recognizable. Uh, the water and the rapid currents from this flood changed the landscape um, of this lake and of this river forever. Well, we're on week number three of a series that we have been doing here at Ignite called Undertow, learning to stand in the midst of the currents of our world. And we're talking about how our culture is full of different kinds of currents that are capable of sweeping us away and even pulling us under if we're not careful. It can do tremendous damage to our lives and sometimes even to our souls. We've been talking about and saying, man, there's all different kinds of currents. Some of them are good. Some, I mean, like, I'll give you an example. I, I think this is cool. There's a part of uh, the younger generation today, part of the culture is there's sort of a serving mindset to help the least of these, to help those that are in need. There's some currents like that that are fantastic in our culture, right? There's some great things. But there are also currents. Some of them are political. Some of them are values and agenda-based. Some of them even are spiritual. The Bible talks a ton about sort of the spiritual war, some of the spiritual battles, some of the spiritual currents and tides that are warring against us. Some of them are negative, like some of those things. Whether you or I recognize it or know it or, or, or not, these are currents that are pulling at you and me all the time. They are reshaping the landscape of our, the world around us. Virtually anywhere you go, there are tides and currents fighting against you. And if you and I aren't careful, it is so easy for us to just get swept away by them. So for a few weeks, we're talking about how to stand, and even more importantly, how to stand and impact the culture that we are a part of, and not just get swept away. How we can stand firm in our faith, despite the currents that pull against us. Today, we're going to talk about probably the most controversial subject in this entire series, one that is sweeping away against our culture and eroding the landscape of our families, of our cities, of our country in unprecedented kind of ways. It's the, the current that I think is probably sweeping faster and mo more ferociously than any other topic we can hit, and I'm calling it the sexual undertow. And it's huge in our country right now. We are being pulled. Even the church, we are being pulled away, and we don't even know it. Our attitudes about marriage, about divorce, about sex, about gender, about homosexuality, about all kinds of things are being pushed and pulled and reshaped and challenged on a daily basis. And here's where we're going. I would argue that most of, for most of us, 
By far, the vast majority of us, our values, our views, our understanding on these kind of topics have been shaped way more by the culture in which we live than by God. And the truth be told, we are being swept away these days. Remember in week one, we talked about the story where Jesus is teaching and he says to his followers, he says, anybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He said, when the currents come and the waves hit and the wind blows and the rains come down, he said, the person who has built their life on my truth and my wisdom, he or she will be able to stand. He says, but whoever of you hears these words of mine but does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when the wind and the waves come and the currents go, he says, the the house will come crashing down among you because it was built on the sand. It didn't have a solid foundation. And, uh, kind of the, the phrase that I kept thinking about, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intersperse that imagery into the whole topic today, because the, 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 the phrase that I just kept thinking as I was, as I was prepping the message this week is, is this phrase, and I'm going to say it a bunch of times, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you'll, you'll get it and remember, but I, here, here's the truth of that scripture, right, is if we don't learn to stand and to build our lives, if we don't learn to stand on God's truth and on God's wisdom, then we will not stand at all. Did you hear that? Right? If, according to Jesus, if we don't learn to stand on God's truth, not just, not just pick and choose, not just whatever we want, not just a little bit here and a little bit there, but if we don't learn to stand and build our lives on God's truth, then according to Jesus, we will not be able to stand at all. We will get swept away in this life, and it puts us on shaky ground even for eternity. If we are not building our lives on Christ, what will we have to stand on for eternity? I remember being at a church planner's retreat. I, I, I just was thinking, man, we see this truth all over the place in our culture, don't we? We see, see ways, especially when we start talking about sex, we can see the devastation that comes as we build our lives on the sand, as, our, as what, what we know Christ says and what we know the Bible teaches about how we are to live our lives. When we don't do it, we can see the pain and the devastation and destruction all over the place, and especially in the area of our sexuality. I was thinking this week about remembering a time, probably 15 years ago, uh, Tina and I went to, uh, away to a, a church planner's retreat, and we used to love to go to these kind of things. We get to connect with um, dozens and dozens of other people, like-minded pastors and church planters who are out kind of on the front lines, um, you know, trying to reach people for Christ, trying to grow churches and all that kind of stuff. And, and we would get great teaching and we would get great input. Um, we would uh, get challenged on how to lead better and how to live more missionally focused kind of lives. Uh, we'd get challenged on how to, how to live for Christ in our own personal lives and in our marriages and families and that kind of stuff. And I remember, uh, and then we'd have also time just to connect with each other. And I remember um, after one of these sessions, I was a, a young whippersnapper at the time. I was in my, probably my 20s or something. And, uh, and I, uh, can remember pulling a couple of, uh, these sort of seasoned, uh, church planters aside and talking with them, guys that I respected. These, these are, are godly men who had, um, started churches, grown them to between 500 and a thousand people. They'd reached a whole truckload of people, uh, for God's kingdom. And, and I really, I mean, at, especially at that stage, I was like, man, I want to be like them. I want to, I want to live my life like them. They're doing pretty well. And so I kind of pulled them aside and just kind of said, man, I, you know, I'm kind of new to this, uh, you know, living for Christ uh, in my marriage and in my family. It's not really something I saw growing up. And just kind of ch- asked him, I said, you know, how do you, how do you do that in the midst of demanding ministry and building churches and all that kind of stuff? And, and the two of these guys spent a little bit of time pouring into me. They were asking questions and, and uh, kind of encouraging me. How, you know, do you pray, are you praying with your wife? Are you, you know, praying with your kids, you know, are you gone all the time? Are you, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they're asking, and I, it was good. I was, I was writing it down. I was eating it up. And, uh, 
But then, uh, especially at the end, there was kind of a pause, and I kind of turned to the older of the two um, and, and just said, look, I, I never really saw this kind of stuff growing up. What would you say to me? What would you, if you had to give me you know, a piece or two or three of advice about how to really have a Christ-focused and Christ, you know, God-glorifying family, what would you say to me? And the guy, you know, kind of in a fatherly or grandfatherly sort of way, he sort of smirked and, and started, you know, started kind of sharing with me and, and talking with me, but I'll never forget it was the weirdest thing. He's, I mean, in the midst of this, I mean, there, he's kind of beaming as he's sharing stuff, and he gets to this part where he's talking about his marriage, and all of a sudden, he stopped mid-sentence. His face went completely pale, like he looked ill, like that kind of a thing, and he excused himself and said he needed to go back to his room and talk to his wife. And I I was like, okay, and I mean, I it's one of those things that it was it sort of so... Um, it was kind of jarring, you know, it was so like abrupt and stuff that you're like, what is going on? And uh, I kind of let it go and went on, but it was stuck in the back of my brain. And then came the announcement two or three days later, uh, the guy stepping down from ministry effective immediately. Um, He'd had an affair and it had been going on. It wasn't something he planned for. The guy's not the devil. He's not the antichrist. He's a good guy. I mean, uh, I don't think he or anybody ever starts out to say, hey, I think I'm going to commit adultery. I think I'm going to rip my wife's heart out and crush it. I think I'm going to lose the respect of my children. I think I'm going to destroy my career. I don't think anybody ever starts out that way. And yet he had gotten caught in the undertow. He had been swept along. Woman came in. She was needy. She flattered his vanity a little bit. He started meeting with her all the time, again and again and again. And boundaries got crossed and he was swept away and man you the devastation that came from that was unbelievable and we see that kind of stuff all over in our culture these days don't we I read some research this week done uh, by a ministry of people that uh, minister to, to people that are addicted to porn and it's called triplexchurch.com. Uh, they help people find freedom from this kind of stuff. But according to their research, they said 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women struggle with an addiction to some type of pornography. They said 47% of homes, they say, in America say that porn is a regular struggle in their homes every week. It's wreaking havoc on marriages. It's impacting relationships. It's bringing pain and the aftermath of not being able to withstand the sexual undertow in our culture. People are not able to stand up against the currents that are sweeping through our culture like that. And as a result, we see divorce. We see rape sometimes. We see affairs. We see gender confusion. We see uh, you know, LBGTQ, whatever it is, and on and on. We see all kinds of confusion going on in our culture. We are a culture that has been swept away by the sexual undertow. There's so much distortion in our world. There's so much confusion over this stuff, and really there's so much pain that we see and experience as a result. And so today we're going to dig into this whole topic and try and look at God's perspective on this topic of how we can stand and withstand even the pressures and the currents that are sweeping through our culture. We're going to talk about how life works best in this kind of stuff. I'm going to ask you to give me some grace uh, today for you to keep an open mind and for you just to stay with me uh, as I'm trying to tackle really an impossible sort of message, a countercultural topic in about 35 minutes. I was telling Tina yesterday, I'm like, I think this is the, f- the first time I've, I've preached a message when I thought, uh, when, when I sat back and said, you know, if, if our congregation, if the people that are here are any way indicative of the statistics, then the majority of people in the room won't agree with, with what God has to say on the topic. And so I'm asking for some grace. Like I said, it's an impossible thing, but I'm asking you would, you, would you crack the door to your heart a little bit and just ask and think for a second, like, what if it's true? What if God really does know what he's talking about on this topic? What is, what is he trying to say to me and to us? How can we build our lives in such a way that we can stand even in the midst of unbelievable pressures and currents in our world? Fair enough. We're going to be uh, looking at a pretty big chunk of God's book. Uh, God's writing a letter through the Apostle Paul to a group of Christ followers, a little church in his city named Corinth. 
Corinth was notoriously known as a place of sexual promiscuity and confusion. And so God spends three full chapters talking specifically about his plans and values regarding sex, regarding marriage, and a whole host of other topics. And I want us to kind of read this, and then I'm just going to grab a few themes out, unpack them a little bit, and we'll go from there. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians 5 through 7. If not, you can follow along on the screens, or it's on the Ignite Church app under notes. Uh, You can follow along with these scriptures. We're going to start out 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 2. I'll stop at a couple places, but really I just want to kind of read through it and let you see, I don't know if you remember or not, but we talked about the whole counsel of God, kind of a big picture of this whole topic of sexuality, especially sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2 says this, it says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, he says to the church, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who is doing this? So he's talking about incest here, right? That's going on inside the church with people who are supposed to be Christ followers. And, and they're sort of bragging about it. They're joking. They're sort of attaboying them. And God says, what are you thinking, right? Are you out of your mind? This is, this is something that is not to be bragged about. This is something to be repented of. This is something to encourage people to come back to God about. So this is a huge deal to him. Let's go on, verse 9. Jumping ahead, says this, it says, I wrote to you in my last letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or who are greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But he says, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, right? But is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slander, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Let me pause there for a second. You know, it seems to me that we get this one all wrong. We in our culture these days, we as Christ followers in our culture these days, have been sort of tagged as haters. And there's, to some degree, they're right, right? I mean, I think we've, and it's primarily because I think we've gotten this whole idea wrong. The Bible here, right, God's word to us, I mean, through, through Paul, he's saying, right, he's saying, don't you get it? When I told you not, not, to, not to associate or not to, you know, or, or to, to judge, I should say, uh, the, the people who, uh, who are sexually immoral in that sense, he's like, I wasn't talking about those outside the church, right? They are living their lives not as, they're not Christ followers, and they're acting like they're not Christ followers. And, and, and he's saying, why would you expect them to live like Christ followers, they're being consistent, right? They're, they're living their lives consistently with what they believe. And then Paul and God through him, right, is, is turning to the church and saying, how about you? You claim to be Christ followers. Are you living your lives in such a way that your lives, and especially your sexuality in this context, is that under the, uh, under the, the truth of God's word? Are you living consistently with what you say you believe? Or are you being swept away? Are you just going the way of culture? seems like so often we get that wrong. We inside the church don't really want to look at this for ourselves. We don't want to apply God's truth, especially in the area of sex. We don't want to live this stuff out. We don't want to stand on his truth. Instead, we'd rather look over there at them, look down our noses and call them names. And God says, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Instead, shouldn't you look here? Shouldn't you judge yourself? Shouldn't you help your brothers and sisters that claim to be Christ followers and make sure that you are honoring and living lives that that bring glory to and praise to and reflect the awesome God that made you, that loves you, that saved you, that died for you? Isn't that where your focus should be? So often, I think, we're happy to look there, but man, we do not want to look here. And God's calling our bluff here. Saying those outside the church are living consistently, but you call yourself a follower of Christ. Are you living out my values? Are you standing on my truth? Are you being shaped by my words? Are you living consistently as my followers? 
or are you just getting swept away? You know, for the last uh, couple of years, I've been wanting to do a series called Don't Judge Me. <laughs> and uh, don't judge me, right? It's uh, based sort of on this supreme value of our culture these days where you hear this kind of thing over and over and over again. Don't judge me. And what, kind of what we mean by that oftentimes is I want to be able to live my life however I want. And I don't want you to think that I'm doing anything wrong, right? So we say, don't judge me. Don't judge me on that. You shouldn't judge me. And, uh, and we'll even, uh, in, inside the church, we'll even say, well, God doesn't want you to judge. And I have to say that's true and it's not true all at the same time, right? Because what he does say, what God is very clear about is he's saying, don't judge people that are outside the church. They're going to stand before God. God's going to take care of it one day. Don't, don't worry about people that aren't yet believers. But he's telling us that we actually are to judge, and I don't mean it kind of look down your nose kind of way, but we are to bring truth. We are to test the spirits. We are to know what we are to stand on. We are to encourage one another to stand on and live in the truth. I'm talking about inside the church, the body of believers. And even though the last part of this seems harsh, saying don't even eat with those kind of people, right? Don't even, don't associate. He's referring back to Jesus' own words, Jesus' own teaching on the subject, which is, it comes from Matthew 18, right? It's his, his, his own kind of principle, saying inside the church, living for Christ, honoring Christ with your bodies, with your lives, with all of who you are is such a big deal. He says, man, if you see a brother or a sister that is living in sin, that is weighed down and caught up in the flow of culture and they're getting swept away, he's saying it's the loving thing to do. What do you do? You go to them in love and you speak truth in love. And you say, boy, you're getting swept away. You're sinning. Here's what God says. And I'm just, I want, I care about you so much. I just want to see you flourish. I want to see you come back home to the Father. And he says, boy, if that doesn't work, then bring a couple of impartial, impartial witnesses with you. Why? Because we could be deceived too, right? And so we bring a couple others and talk that out together. And if there's a sin that's been committed, you encourage whoever, right? Maybe both sides to, to repent, to turn back to God in hopes that they will, they will be restored and forgiven by the Father, in hopes that they'll be restored into the community, into the church, and live in right relationship. If somebody refuses to listen to the first person when they come to them, they point out their sin. If they refuse to listen to the second, they said, then, then, then finally bring it to the church or to even to the church leadership, right? And, and, and bring them into it. And if these if these, uh, if the church can lovingly lead these, uh, the the person back, help them to to turn back to Christ, help them to to humble themselves. They're saying, "Man, what a joy that would be!" Right? Then you'd be restored, and everything would be as it should be. But they say, if they, if even if they're if they refuse to listen, then it says, then you treat them as you would an unbeliever. And sometimes, in extreme cases. You refuse even to eat with them. You sort of put them out of the fellowship. Not something that's popular, not something we like to talk about, but God's saying, man, this, this whole kind of thing matters so much that he set up this, this system and this principle so that people can be encouraged to come back home so that the church can be raised up and can shine Jesus to a world that desperately needs it. I'm getting ahead of myself, so uh, let's, let's kind of keep going here. First um, uh, Corinthians 6, 9 through 20. Let's keep going here. Again, the hope even, uh, the hope even uh, of putting somebody out of fellowship, of not eating, is not for judgment. It is the hope that they will see the error of their ways. They will turn back to God and come home. That's always the heart of God in these kinds of deals. First Corinthians 6, starting with verse 9, goes on and says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen to this. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, to which there should be a gulp in the room. Right? But keep listening, right? says, and that is what some of you were. That's what some of you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were made clean. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, I have the right to do anything, you say, but, everything is benef- uh, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do every, you know, anything and everything, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are, me- that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee then from sexual immorality. Flee. All other sin a person commits are outside of his body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. A couple more verses here. Seven, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 says, Now for the matters that you wrote about. I just love that, by the way. So there's been a dialogue going back and forth, letters that have been exchanged. And apparently the, the people of Corinth, again, living in a culture that has been swept away by sexual immorality, they had some questions that they asked and so that they've been wanting answers to. And so they wrote him and asked a question, and I think it's hilarious, that for six chapters now, uh, God, and God through Paul, has been answering questions that the people weren't asking. <laughs> and I read that and I kind of smirk because some Sometimes the truth that we need to hear is not the truth that we want to hear, right? Because sometimes God is trying to address the deeper issues, the bigger issues in our lives that are beyond our comfort zones, that's beyond what we want to hear. But sometimes it's what we need to hear. And that's, I think this whole topic falls under this category, does it not? Sometimes it's truth that we don't want to hear, but it's stuff that we need to hear. And so God is speaking. He, 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 like I said, he spent six chapters uh, doing this, and then he gets to the, gets to the answer to, his, to some of the questions. Uh, chapter 7, verses 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's starting to talk about being single and staying pure. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body but yields it to the wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. After that, he goes on and spends a lot more time kind of talking about and developing this whole idea of, that our culture really is, knows nothing about of singleness, right? Of, 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 of staying separate and being devoted fully to the Lord and living our lives in sexual purity and, uh, in, and in freedom and that kind of way. Like I said, just devoted to the Lord. But then he ends uh, with this section and with this statement, which I think applies to the previous three chapters, really. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35. He says, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Isn't that a great comment? I'm going to ask that as we talk about this a little bit more, just keep that in the forefront. God says, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a right way in undivided devotion to God. Okay, so these three chapters are talking about the tides of sexual immorality in the culture in which they lived in Corinth. It's very similar to the culture that we live in today. The word that gets used there is immorality. It means literally uh, behavior which is contrary to God's will for his people. The Greek word for that is porneia, or, or yeah, porneo, one or the other, and uh, pornos, which is where we get the word for pornography from. I found it interesting this week that that word, like the root of that word, where it comes from in the Greek literally means to sell someone into slavery. And that's sort of what sexual sin is like, isn't it? That's sort of what pornography is like, isn't it? It's got claws. It, it sort of grabs into us, into our hearts and into our souls. And if we're not careful, it will sweep us away into slavery. We will be consumed by it. I'm amazed at how many people these days live with what's called a sex addiction or an addiction to pornography or whatever because it gets its claws in us and we can't be free. That's what sexual immorality looks like and what it's like. 
As God goes through this, he lists a bunch of different areas that that he refers to as sexual immorality, a whole host of things that are contrary to God's will for us. It's not exhaustive, but he starts by making a list. He starts out in in chapter 5, verse 1, we just read, he talks about incest. A man has his father's wife. He says, it's sin, it's wrong, it's sexual immorality, God says. Chapter 6, verse 9, mentions two things. It mentions adultery, sleeping with somebody that's not your wife or your husband. And then it mentions homosexuality. And it says it's sexual immorality, it's sin, God says. Chapter 6, verse 15, talks about hooking up with a prostitute. And he says it's sin, it's immorality, God says. You get to chapter 7, verse 1, again, it it says, hey, if you can live your life in purity, great. But then it goes into verse 2, which says this. But since sexual immorality is occurring, it says, here's the parameters, here's the boundaries, here's what God desires. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Friends, God's standard is very clear. I think sometimes we think that, oh, it's all murky and we don't really know what God's standard is. God's, God's incredibly straightforward. What's God's standard? He says, sex is reserved for one man and one woman in the context of marriage. That's it. God's standard has never changed. Sex is only for a wife and a husband committed to each other in a marital kind of relationship. Some of us might say or think, man, well, I thought God wanted to be happy, me to be happy, and he does in that sense. And that's why God puts boundaries around sex for his kids. I mean, can you imagine if I as a parent, particularly when my kids were young, let's say two, three, four years of, of age, can you imagine if I loved them and cared about them, giving them no boundaries? It would be catastrophic. Sure, go to bed whenever you want. Eat whatever you want. What do you think they're going to choose? It'd be puking. It'd be terrible, right? It'd be, sure, do whatever you want. Sure, if you want to go play on the interstate, that's fine. Would that be a loving thing to, to do? No, of course not. Parents that would do that, you would say they should be arrested, right? They are incompetent as parents. Of course, as parents, we know better. And so we set certain boundaries, not to punish them, but to what? Protect them, right? We set boundaries not to punish, but to protect them. Now let me just turn the page and say, well, God made you and he made me. He is your heavenly father. He created you. You wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for him. When God gave you your life, he also established certain parameters, certain principles, certain boundaries, not to punish you, but to protect you so that life could go well for you he made us he created sex he holds all wisdom he holds all knowledge and therefore he says this is how sex works best in this context in these parameters one man and one woman in the context of marriage for a lifetime he says that's what you're made for not to punish you but to protect you I'm saying it for your own good, God says, so that you will be able to stand and not get swept away and not just suffer loss. Imagine for a minute if you're driving down the interstate and you decide to get off the highway, but instead of going on an, uh, going, exiting the highway on an off-ramp, you decide to exit it on an on-ramp. And you see a sign there that says, do not enter. How would you feel about that sign? How would you feel about it? Would you resent the sign? Oh, that stupid sign. I should be able to drive wherever I want. I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. I don't need any stupid sign telling me where I can or cannot go. Is that what you think? It's my car. I can do with it whatever I want. And you could. But it would be foolish, wouldn't it? It'd be ridiculous. That sign is not there to punish you, but to protect you. If you stupidly drive off the ramp thinking it's an off-ramp when it's really an on-ramp, you are going to get hurt, and you're going to hurt somebody else. It's so many people, I think, when they see God's protection and provision this way, so when, when he sets boundaries and says, these things are off-limits, they say, why? They say, the audacity of God to tell me what I can and cannot do. I'm an adult. This is my body. It's my life. I can do whatever I want, to which I think, I would answer, sure, you you can. 
And God will allow you to do that. But man, there's so much hurt and pain that's going around as a result, isn't there? Just as sure as driving off an on-ramp. I think the real issue, when, it, when you boil it down uh, about sex, comes to this. Who's really smarter, God or me? Who really knows more about how my life can work best? Is it God or is it me? Who knows what will bring about joy the most to my life and to my soul? Does God know the one who wired me up, the one who created me, saw me even before I was born? Or do I really believe that I do? that I know more about my life. Anytime I disobey God, I'm saying, in essence, I'm saying, uh, I know that you said not to do this, but I know better. I don't trust you, God. Instead, I'm going to trust my own instincts. I'm going to trust my own path. I'm going to be my own God. I think I'm smarter than you. I'm going to follow my own rules. I'm going to listen to my own opinion and the opinion of my culture, despite what you say. Forget you, God. That's what we're saying. You may have created me. You may have given me life. I may owe everything to you, but I'm not going to play by the rules that you establish. I'm not going to live in the boundaries that you set for my own protection. Listen to this quote I ran across this week from Andy Stanley. Uh, He recently gathered with a group of about 250 uh, singles to answer questions on the topic of love, sex, and dating. Attendees were asked to write down questions on cards ahead of time and give them to the moderator. Uh, And the most pointed question of the night came from a middle-aged gentleman. His card read this, I'm divorced. Why save sex for marriage? And here's Andy, Andy Stanley's reply. He said, good question. Actually, we've got the quote up there. There you go. Good question. Your direct question deserves a direct answer. If all there is to life is this life, if you are merely a predator and women are prey, if sex is just physical and disconnected from the concept of permanency, exclusivity, and relationship, then I can't think of a single reason not to have sex with as many women as you can convince to hop into bed with you. <laughs> Stanley commented, it's not exactly the answer that they were expecting from their pastor. <laughs> My answer was particularly disturbing for the women in the audience. He said, heck, it was particularly disturbing to me. But then he goes on. He says, but... If there's more to this life than what meets the eye, if there is a God in whose image you've been made and whose image every woman you've met has been made, if sex is a creation that was created with a purpose, and if part of that purpose is to enhance the expression of intimacy between two people, and if that fragile, wonderful, delicate experience we term intimacy can be damaged or broken through abuse, then your sexual conduct conduct matters a great deal. So you have to decide what you believe, not just about sex, but about everything. Once you decide, the answer to your important question will be clear, perhaps uncomfortably so. I think that's where I'm going with the message today, right? I think you and I have to decide how we are going to live and what we believe. It really comes down to who knows better. Who or what is going to be the driving force, the authority, the decision maker in my life? Who is going to frame my values and my decisions, the direction of which I'm going to go and the the way in which I'm going to build my life? If you call yourself a Christ follower, but you are the one calling the shots. If you call yourself a Christ follower, but you're just sort of choosing to go with the flow rather than standing on the, the, the truth of what God says, then let's be honest, you're not really following Jesus. You can call yourself a Christian, but when it comes down to it, you are just going your own way. You're building your house on the sand. It really does boil down to this. Am I more committed to doing what God says will bring life and joy to my soul on how life works best, or am I more committed to just doing whatever I want and whatever I think will make me most happy? Friends, sex is a gift. It's a gift from God. He created it. It's a good gift. There is nothing bad. It's not dirty. It's not ugly. It's holy. In fact, sometime I'm going to do an entire message on the topic, the ties between uh, a picture of a bride and a groom and in, 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 in a full sexual relationship and the, and the imagery that God pours out of that time and time and time and time and time and time again in the Bible saying, that's the, the, the joy and the life and the unity that you see exemplified over here 
is the picture that God says, that's sort of what the joy is like of living your life full on with God. There's nothing better. It's holy. It's of his creation, right? He made it. But as with any gift, it's a gift that needs to be used correctly. Anything that is good, that has been given to us by God, and sex is one of those good gifts from God. If it's misused, not used according to the ways that God says it's to be used, it's going to bring about pain and destruction to your life. Eventually and inevitably, it will happen. And it will leave scars and shame that will be virtually impossible to walk out of. But there's something better. Life in God's kingdom, life with him, in relationship with him, built on his truth and his wisdom for your life. There's something better following him and his plans for you. It's like building your house on the rock, God says. When storms come, you will stand. It's the life that you're born for. But it requires making a commitment to living with God and for God and his truth, and building a life that stands on his design and his plans for you. Life works best as we align ourselves with his truth. If you feel like that's a restricting kind of statement, that he's going to put a bunch of rules and it's going to be such a killjoy, I want you just to listen to these, these two verses from John 8, uh, 31 and 32. We, t- we typically like the second, but we ignore the first part of this. Listen to this. He says, to the Jews, to those who believed him, Jesus said, listen to this, if you hold to my teaching... If you hold to my teachings, then you're really my disciples. And then, he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you. I find that fascinating, that the word for sexual immorality, pornos, or pornea, right? That word comes from the the root that means to enslave. And yet Jesus says, if you come and you live life in my boundaries, right? with me as the leader, if you let me be the driving force, if you let me set the course for your life, if you build your life on my truth, it leads to freedom. It leads to the life that you and I were always meant to live. Friends, I get that this isn't a popular or normal kind of teaching. I get this is not a normal way to live. There are an infinite number of voices in our culture screaming at the top of their lungs the exact opposite, right? Stuff like free sex with no boundaries, whomever, whenever, wherever you want. You shouldn't be constrained. You can't help it. You were born this way. You can't help it. You married the wrong person. You can't help it. You're a man. It's just what you do. Just do whatever feels good. Nobody can tell you who to love or how you should love, right? I get it. It's not normal. It's hard. It's complicated in our culture. But the truth of God's word makes it actually pretty simple. Where Jesus says, come and follow me. Come and live your life with me. Come and build your life on my truth and on my principles. And you will find freedom and life. I'm going to go back in like three minutes, I'm going to highlight just a couple more things. That's, that's the big idea I just wanted to get at because I was like, man, it, until we settle, like who's in charge of this deal? Who are we going to believe? Who really knows best for my life? Until we settle that, I was like, all of the specifics about sex or this or that or anything else, it doesn't really matter. If we think I know better than God and I'm just going to rip parts of those, I'm just going to throw his word out. I'm going to build my life on my own truth and whatever I want and whatever feels good. Until we settle that issue, none of the specifics matter. And so I I opted to take the bulk of the time to talk about who really knows best. How are we going to build our lives? Because if we don't build our lives on his truth, if we don't stand and learn to stand on his truth, we will not stand at all. So real quick, like I said, in about three minutes, I'm going to read through a, a section again and just give a few specifics um, in dealing and learning to stand in this whole area of the sexual undertow. Back to chapter 6, uh, 10 through 20, some excerpts. It says, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this. Here's, here's one of the things I'm going to talk about. And that is what some of you were. You used to live that way, he's saying, in all kinds of sexual sin. But you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Jumping ahead to verse 13. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in spirit? For it said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee then from sexual immorality. A couple of just quick responses, right? What's our response as believers, as, as uh, followers of Christ? What's our response to be towards sexual immorality, towards anything outside of God's boundaries? What's our response to be? Go back to the last slide. Can you go back to the last slide? Just hit back one. What's that last line say? Flee. Okay, that was weak, right? What does it say? Flee. Flee. There you go, right? Flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. And I think there are probably some of us here that need to hear this. Really, we need to be reminded of that kind of thing. Flee. Run away. Maybe you've been getting closer and closer and closer to some type of sexual sin towards something other than the one man, one woman in the context of marriage kind of relationship. And if that's you this morning, I think God is speaking to you to run away, to, to trust him and turn around and flee from that. God's saying, trust me in this. I've got your back. I'm trying to build a life for you that will stand and is good. I love verse 11 that is highlighted where God says, I know some of you used to be that way, right? You were that. You used to be adulterers, he's saying. You used to be gay. You used to be players. You used to be people that cheated on your wives or husbands. You used to be people that would sleep around from person to person to person. You used to be fill in the blank. But what I love about it is that this is highlighting God's transforming power. He changes lives all the time. He sets people free. He does it every day. He transforms and makes people into who they were always intended to be. I've seen sex addicts who cheat on their wives or husbands habitually. I've seen them set free and walk into a unified, right, oneness sort of relationship where they are protected, where they never step outside of those bounds again. I've seen it happen. I've seen people who are addicted to porn, literally, like so much so that you can see darkness in their eyes. I've seen people set free so much that you you see Jesus oozing out of them. I've seen people who have lived the homosexual lifestyle. One of my best friends right after college, I saw struggling with this kind of thing. I've seen them walk out the other side in freedom into who they were created to be. God transforms lives. He does it every day. He does it all the time. That's what God does. He transforms. He forgives. He makes new. And that takes us to the last thing I just want to mention for today. For those of us, probably all of us in one way or another, who have found ourselves getting swept away at some point because of sexual sin, whether it be in our actions or, as Jesus said, even in our minds or in our hearts. For those of us that have found ourselves and saying, man, we have missed the purity bar. We've, we've gone way under the purity bar. For those of us that might have found ourselves addicted to stuff or, or with skeletons in our closet in one way or another, people that oftentimes live with guilt and shame and regret, I want you to hear and I want you to be reminded of this passage, right? Verse 11, where he says this. He says, that's who you used to be. That's who you were. But you were washed. What does washed mean? To make clean, right? You were washed. You are sanctified. You have been made like Christ. You were justified. Your sins have been forgiven. Anytime I see the word justified, I, I, I say to myself, just as if you never sinned. That's what justified means. You have been justified by Christ. He has taken your sin away so that when God looks at you, he does not see the sin, but he sees the perfect, unblemished work of Christ in your life. You have been cleansed. You have been made new. 
You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying you have been made new. You are forgiven for your past. You are freed from your past because of Jesus. Those sins that used to define you, that used to control you are no more. And there is a fresh start for you this morning. There's a new life awaiting you this morning. Today is the day of forgiveness, the Bible tells us. Today is the day of second chances. For those that need to turn back and cry out for forgiveness can find it today because of Christ. You can be washed and cleaned and made once again just as if you never sinned. Friends, I don't know where you're at with God today. Maybe you're here, and, and the truth is your beliefs about sex have been shaped almost entirely by yourself and your culture. And maybe today it's time to turn away from that and say, God, I don't understand it. I don't get it fully, but I want to build my life on your truth. I want to be able to stand, come what may. And so, God, I'm going to take a step and say, Would you teach me? Would you lead me? Would you guide me? Would you put your word in me and teach me to live my life following you? Maybe you're here this morning and you're flirting with a sexual sin of some way, some kind. Maybe an affair. It could be with a girlfriend, a boyfriend. It could be whatever. But you're thinking about stepping out of bounds and you know it's wrong, but you're tempted. And maybe God is speaking to you today and saying, flee, right? Run away, run away, run away, right? Turn around, head in the other direction. Would you trust me and would you live the life I have for you? Why? Because it's good. Because your creator, your savior, the God who died for you, the Lord knows better and he's got good plans for you. Or maybe you've blown it and maybe to some degree there is guilt and shame and junk from your past. And maybe today it's time just to bring that back to Christ, to turn to him, to offer it to him and say, God, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you take away my sin and would you make me new? Would you bring freedom to my soul and to my life? Let me close just with the the verse I read earlier, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35. This is God speaking, saying, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, that's our cry this morning. Lord, we want to live in the, in the freedom and in the life that you have for us. Lord, I get that this is a tough topic and, and um, it's challenging for us. It's countercultural for us. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us as your people to learn to stand on your word, that we would live our lives and build our lives on your truth, even when it's hard that we would be able to stand. Teach us, help us to to make decisions and to build our lives based not on our whims, not on the, the currents of our culture, but based on your truth. Father, for those of us that have been, uh, that have been swept away and we've blown it, Lord, would you come uh, and would you forgive us? Lord, would you cleanse us for our sin? We just turn to you right now in our hearts and just say, we need you, Jesus. Would you wash away our sin? Forgive us for our rebellion, for our sin, for going our own direction. God, would you cleanse us? Would you, would you take it away, our, our sin, just as if we never sinned? Would you make us pure again and teach us to live our lives? with you and even for some who might be here today God and are flirting with it Lord we want to with temptation of sexual sin in some way Lord we want to lay that down before you we want to turn from it and turn back to you pray that you would strengthen protect help us to help us to put space between us and sin that we could live our lives in a right way in undivided devotion to you oh God Lord we need you Boy, do we need you. We need your grace. We need your love. We need your forgiveness. We need your power. We need your presence with us. We need your your work in us to bring about that new life that you have already purchased for us in Christ. And so would you come and fill us and send us out, Lord, in step with you in the fullness of your spirit 
to stand in a world that is being swept away. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.